I figured on a cold morning like today, you might want a, a sermon set in a temperate climate, a Mediterranean climate. So I ask you to picture the Holy Land. Picture it with all its warmth and sometimes heat and a bit of dust and quite a bit of dryness. And what all that adds up to is, in part, a wonderful preservation of archaeological artifacts. One of the things that is quite interesting about current-day Israel is that you literally can't dig for a sewer line without hitting some kind of sign of a prior civilization. That the stuff is everywhere. Now, what that means is that in the early days of biblical archaeology, which was in the eight, late 1800s for the most part, people could go to the Holy Land and find whatever they were looking for. So archaeologists who wanted to prove a certain part of the Bible was historically true could go and find a building foundation that resembled whatever building they were focusing on in whatever part of the Bible that interested them. They could find pottery. They could find coins. They could find, in some eras, mosaics and other artworks that had been preserved in this dry climate. And so the archaeology of Israel became a sort of blank canvas that people would paint on and say, see, this proves that this is where the town of Jericho was. And see, this proves that this is where Moses did that, and Jesus did this, and St. Paul did the other thing. What then, though, became clear as particularly the 20th century rolled along was that a lot of that research had been done very poorly and done simply to confirm people's own prejudices and preconceptions. And so as the field of biblical archaeology matured, as people got better at it and more ethical about it, we suddenly began to learn all sorts of things about the people who lived throughout the stories of the Bible, throughout the different eras depicted, that we had no idea was true. But for the sake of time, I'll simply focus on this morning's story from the Gospel of the changing the water into wine. Because as the archaeology took place, more and more Jewish homes of middle class and upper class levels were excavated. And part of what was discovered were these depressions in the ground near the entries. And it looked a lot like our baptismal font. So just a few steps down and a flat area and a, a rim around it. And folks were a little bit mystified by what these were. But then the Dead Sea Scrolls were discovered to compress the story greatly. And what they read in the De Dead Sea Scrolls was that, in fact, in the time of Jesus, a very common household feature were, and I'm going to use my own made-up term, purification ponds. That sort of like a koi pond, in terms of size and depth, people had, near the entries of their homes, these ponds that water could be poured into and folks could 
very ritually, symbolically washed themselves. It wasn't designed to be a bathtub. It was instead to do a splash of water on their face, their hands, and their feet. And that would symbolize how they were paying attention to God in that moment and asking God to make them whole again from a day's hard labors and the various ethical compromises that may have been made, or just the ways people might have forgotten God through the day. Some of these were put where you literally had to walk through them to enter a home. That's how important the purification symbolism was to people's everyday lives. But we didn't know about that for years and years and years, literally for centuries. And so folks had all sorts of really outlandish ideas about what was this rite of purification that was talked about in this morning's gospel that necessitated these huge jars of water. Because these are, if you read the gospel, very large. They're like big drums of water. We'd probably make them out of big plastic uh, rain barrels or something today. They didn't realize that this was, in a sense, an everyday spiritual tool for many, many people that Jesus was speaking with. It had been lost to history until archaeology and document research discovered what it was. So, this story is centered on something that was a part of people's everyday spiritual lives. The ritual washing, these big jugs of water. And what happens in this story is, of course, miraculous, the water being turned into wine, but also Jesus is taking something that was a part of people's everyday spiritual practices and turning up the volume on it. He's turning it up to 11 in terms of what's happening with it. That this is no longer simply a daily washing that perhaps by the time Jesus came along had become a little bit routine for people. Instead, this was the actual wine of life. It was something that was transformed from water into wine and is designed to remind us of the Holy Eucharist that we'll get to have in just a few moments. It's designed to remind us of Jesus being willing to institute the Last Supper even though this is the, the first sign in the Gospel of John. It's the foreshadowing of what's to come. And why this is so important to us is said right near the end of the Gospel, where the steward of the feast, and this is sort of the master of ceremonies, for, or the event coordinator for this wedding reception, who tastes all the wine to make sure it's good, and make sure the refreshments are properly laid out. He tastes this wine that had been watered just a few moments before and, and says, you have saved the best for last. Ta-da! Jesus. That God, who had been in relationship with the human race since we were all created, has now saved the best for last. That Jesus is now the ultimate expression, the ultimate reaching out by God so that we could know how much we are beloved and that this takes place at a wedding feast is to remind us of that love, to remind us of that relationship, that commitment, all of the best aspects 
of a married relationship. That's what we are offered by God and what God hopes we'll say yes to. But all this happens through an everyday type of tool, those ritual washing vessels. And so we are also asked to look at our everyday lives and know that God can use anything in our life, the routine drive to work, the time of prayer that we might have just before we close our eyes at night, the encounter that is very common in the coffee break room or in the lunchroom at school that just becomes routine. God can use any of those routine things and make wine. Any of those times of sipping some water, God can make holy, divine, miraculous. That that's part of what God wants us to be aware of. And we're not likely to, to see our milk in the morning suddenly turn into wine. That'd be kind of bizarre. But we can see God's love suddenly be injected into a situation that we thought was very everyday, totally up to us, something that God might even overlook. God is there. God's there every time, all the time. And at times, we'll transform it into a miraculous moment, a time when suddenly life has meaning in a new way for ourselves or for someone near us. One of the things that this gospel reading also has is the note that the servants knew where the wine had come from. No one else, just the servants and Jesus. And so that was one of those reminders that the witness to the miracle is the one who helped it happen. Because it said the servants filled these jugs, and that was a lot of water to transport. The servants did a lot of physical effort to make this happen. And therefore, the miracle could happen, and they got to be the witnesses of it. And therefore, that's how we, all these centuries later, get to hear about it. The servants talked about it. The servants told the disciples or somebody so that it got to be in this gospel. And that's that other reminder to us that at times we may think we're doing a very boring job. We may be doing a task that is so routine, a labor that seems so boring, and God steps in and transforms it into a miracle. That because we're willing to do the boring stuff, the miraculous can happen. And the servants didn't get to drink the wine, so they weren't the direct beneficiaries. But they got to see that the miracle took place. And so in many ways, they were even better recipients than those who drank the wine and didn't know where it was from. And so this story is a story of the everyday, even as it's a story of the miraculous. And it's a reminder to us that in the everyday things, God finds ways to do the miraculous, and God actually needs the everyday things to do the miraculous. The everyday things, the everyday people, the everyday chores, God can transform them all. And our role is to pay attention to what we're carrying, that we're no longer carrying the water, we're now carrying the wine. We're no longer carrying the routine, we're now carrying the miraculous. 
We're no longer part of an everyday chore, but we're part of the world being changed forever. In the name of the Father, and of the Son, and of the Holy Spirit. Amen.